God gave to uh, Zechariah uh, in order to encourage the Israelites who had returned back to Jerusalem uh, after the Babylonian captivity. And uh, they were uh, there to resettle the land, to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And, and uh, it, it was a daunting task. And so God gives Zechariah these visions and uh, some of them apply to specific individuals, some of them apply to the nation as a whole, some of them apply to Jerusalem, but, but all of these visions were, were menace and encouragement for the Israelites. And so tonight, we've looked at three visions already, so tonight, uh, as we come to chapter number four, uh, I'm sorry, chapter number three, verse one, uh, we get the fourth vision, uh, and uh, that's the vision of the iron uh, plucked from the fire and that should sound familiar to us because remember in the book of Jude we just covered the book of Jude not too long ago Jude talk about uh, being a witness so that we can pull some people out of the fire and that's kind of the picture that's, that we're going to get in this vision that God uh, brings the iron out of the fire everything else is burned up but, but, but he's able to bring the iron out of the fire those, the iron being those people who are his, those he, whom he knows are his. And so uh, we're going to see this vision as it applies to Israel, but it also applies uh, to, to uh, all of us too. But the vision kind of starts out with a strange scene. Uh, and look at verse number one. He says, then he showed me, the angel of the Lord showed me, Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and uh, Satan standing at the right hand to oppose Joshua or really if he's opposing Joshua, Joshua is the servant of the angel of the Lord. He's actually in opposition to the Lord and he's standing at the right hand of the Lord. Now that name Joshua, I don't think the high priest was named Joshua by accident. Uh, that's the name Yeshua. It means Jehovah is salvation. That's the name that if you uh, transliterated it into the Greek, you get the name Jesus. And so Joshua is standing before the angel of the Lord. And who is the angel of the Lord? He's the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And so he's a type of Jesus standing before Jesus. And Satan is standing in opposition uh, to both of them. And so uh, uh, here was this little people and, and, and uh, they had been beaten down and shamed and uh, Joshua had been appointed as the high priest, Zerubbabel as their governor. And uh, uh, I mean, they were, they were having a rough time. And so uh, the, this message is really for Joshua. He, Joshua you know, you can expect to have opposition because Satan opposes me and he's going to oppose you too. All right, now, uh, what's the name Satan mean? All of you know that. What's it mean? It means accuser. And so, no doubt, Satan's opposition against Joshua was in the realm of accusation. He was saying, who is this guy? I mean, this whole situation was laughable to Satan. I mean, he had seen Solomon's temple. He had seen Jerusalem in its glorious days. 
He had seen the high priest dressed in all of his glorious garments. And, and here was Joshua. They didn't have any of that stuff anymore. And here was Joshua, this ragtag priest with this ragtag group of, tag group of Israelites. And Satan looks at this situation and he laughs. And, and as the accuser, I'm sure he said things like, he's unworthy to be high priest. I mean, who is he to be high priest? He doesn't even have the priestly garments. His garments are filthy. Uh, I mean, he's, his, not only are his garments filthy, his soul is filthy. He's a sinner. I mean, we're all sinners, and, and uh, uh, Jesus is going to handle all that here in a minute. But, but uh, he says, he, I, I, I can hear him saying he's a sinner, he's a rebel, and he doesn't deserve to be high priest. What he deserves is to die. And that's kind of the accusation that he makes. And now notice the place here where Satan is standing, because that, that location is pretty telling. He's standing at the right hand of the angel of the Lord. And that's, that little tidbit of information is, is given to us for a reason. Because what does the right, in, in Jewish literature, when you, what does the right hand mean? It's the hand of power. And so there's a picture here of Satan standing next to Jesus. And where is he getting his power? He's getting his power from the Lord. You know, that's a good thing in the sense that he can only do what the Lord allows him to do. I mean, he is a creation. I mean, sometimes I I hear people talking about Satan as if uh, Satan and Jesus are co-equal. Satan is a creation of Jesus Christ. Every power and principality uh, Jesus created, and he rules over those powers and principalities, and he gives Satan his power to do the evil that he does. Now, God doesn't, God doesn't do evil, but he allows Satan to do evil, and what does he allow him to do that evil for? For our good. Whenever Satan is in action, it's always going to work out. It's gonna, it seems like it's going to work out for evil, but it's always going to work out for the good of those that, that, are, that love the Lord and are called according to his uh, purpose. And so here we find Satan uh, opposing Joshua, accusing Joshua, and uh, he no doubt he was that what he was opposing Zerubbabel too. He was opposing the people of Israel and uh, uh, telling them, saying that they were all unworthy of God's blessings and they had no business doing the task that they were trying to do. And so they're discouraged, and part of that discouragement, where's it coming from? It's coming from Satan. Whenever you're in the ministry, whenever you're serving God, Satan is going to oppose you. And God allows that. God allows that because that, that drives you to the Lord and drives you to relying on the Lord instead of relying on your own strength. And that's what God's trying to get Joshua to do and the people of Israel to do and Zerubbabel to do. And that's why he's giving them these visions. Now, look at what the Lord says to Satan. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Israel rebuke you. Is this not a brand? Now, when he's talking about this, he's talking about Joshua. He's talking about Zerubbabel. He's talking about the people of Israel. He's talking about Israel itself. He's talking about Judah. He's talking about Jerusalem. He said, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, who's the king of fire? Satan himself. And so... He's saying that Joshua has been taken out of the fire. 
all of these Israelites have been taken out of the fire. I mean, God sent Babylonian down like a fire to destroy and ravage the land. And these people were spared. They're a generation that God raised up, a remnant of Israel, to do his work. And so they're like a brand plucked out of the fire. You throw a piece of iron in the fire, you throw a bunch of garbage in the fire, the garbage is going to burn up. But you can pull a brand back out of the fire, a piece of iron, and you can clean it up and it's as good as new. And that's the picture that, that God is, is, is giving uh, the Israelites in this particular vision. And he says, I rebuke you, Satan. Uh, you're wrong about Joshua. You're wrong about Zerubbabel. You're wrong about Israel. You're wrong about Jerusalem. Because the Lord, look at this middle part of that verse, the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. He's chosen it for what? We saw earlier, what has he chosen it for? His eternal uh, inhabitation. And so he's going to live in Jerusalem forever. And that's what all of these prophecies that we see are pointing to. Because you've got this little people that are saying, what are we doing this for? I mean, we've got this impossible task. I mean, why are we doing it? And what God is trying to show them, and, and he wants to encourage them to go on because Jerusalem is eternal. It's the eternal city of God. And God is going to dwell there forever. And so what they're doing is, is, is bringing the Jews back into that land, bringing them back into that city, rebuilding the city, rebuilding the temple. Uh, and all of that's pointing to a greater day. And that's the millennial kingdom and the eternal kingdom where God will rule and reign on this earth. And so they're this brand plucked out of a fire. Now, once, when you're plucked out of a fire, uh, you're going to smell like smoke. And you're going to come out pretty, 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 in pretty bad shape. And that's kind of the picture that we get right here. But, but hey, the, the, the central part of who you are remains. The central, thing, the central uh, part of who Israel was remained. Joshua was an iron block plucked out of the fire. Zerubbabel was an iron uh, plucked out of the fire. And yeah, his soul was dirty. And yeah, his garments were dirty. But God's going to take care of that. And so, uh, uh, you know, the Lord says to Satan, I rebuke you. I mean, hey, this is, I'm going to do something with Joshua. I'm going to do something with Jerusalem. I'm going to do something with, with Israel. Then in verse number three, now Joshua was Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel of the Lord. In this vision, he was clothed with filthy garments. And so the picture, I mean, I don't know that Joshua himself was actually there, but, but one, uh, this picture of Joshua being clothed in filthy garments was there. And he's standing before the angel of the Lord. What was the high priest supposed to wear? And I didn't want to go back and get into all the Levitical uh, aspects of the priesthood, so... So we're not going to do that, but you ought to remember that from, from your studies in the, in the Torah. The priest was prescribed by law to wear this perfect white linen garment. And here was Joshua, and he was clothed in filthy garments. But the good thing is his position. Where is he standing? He's standing before the angel of the Lord. And so he's got hope. And, and those filthy garments represent those filthy garments of our own works from a spiritual standpoint. I mean, Joshua was a sinner, just like all of us were sinners. And not only was he filthy uh, 
externally, he was filthy internally too. And somehow he's got to be cleaned up in order to be the high priest. And so only who can clean him up? Only God can clean him up for that task. So verse number four, it says, Then he, and who's the he here? You see it in caps, the Lord, answered and spoke to those who stood before him. Uh, those would be Joshua, uh, the angel of the Lord, even though the angel of the Lord is the Lord. Uh, uh, maybe some angels. I think maybe there are even angels in the midst, maybe some saints in the midst. We don't know. We, we don't have, have the whole vision. But he spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him, from Joshua. And to him he said, See, I have removed your... Now, see, this is a spiritual lesson right here that he's given because he says, I have removed... He didn't say your clothes from you. I've removed your iniquity from you. The only person who can clean us up spiritually is the Lord. And how does he do that? He does that through sacrifice. I mean, the Jewish sacrificial system was the only way the Jew could be cleansed of his sins. But actually he wasn't cleansed. He, his sins were covered until Jesus died on a cross and then they were cleansed of their sins. But in eternity he can look at this and say, uh, you know, uh, the Lord answered and spoke to those who were before him, take away his filthy garments from him. So the Lord is cleansing him. And then he said to him, see, I've removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with rich robes. Now what kind of robes? I mean, what are rich robes? He's talking about the righteousness of God, the holiness of God. Go back a little bit to uh, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, a passage we looked at on a few Sundays back. In Isaiah chapter 61, look down at, I believe it's in 61. Verse number 10. Isaiah is speaking. He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Watch this. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself out with ornaments, as, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. He's the one who clothes us in righteousness and holiness. That's why Paul wrote the book of Galatians. Because there's so many people who try to create their own righteousness. Who try to, to clean up their own dirty souls. And you can't do that. There's only one way that we can be cleansed and made perfectly righteous. righteous and that's by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, the, so uh, uh, the Lord tells him that uh, take away his filthy garments from him. And then he says, I'm the one who removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And then in verse number five, and I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. Again, we're not going to go back to the Levitical law and study all of this, but, but it's pretty easy to see the spiritual application of the turban. What does the turban cover? It covers the head. And so he's talk, this, this turban was also made of pure white linen. And so there's this purity sense. 
And, and, and we're talking about the purity, when we're talking about these robes of righteousness, we're talking about the purity of the soul. When we talk about the turban, we're, we're talking about what? We're talking about the purity of the mind. And before you can have purity of the soul, you have to have purity of the mind. And how do you get the purity of mind spiritually? You get it through the word of God. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. We're sanctified by the word of God. You can only become a believer uh, through the word of God. And so once that's in your mind, then it can get into your heart. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that we may instruct him? But we have, he's speaking of believers, we have the mind of Christ. And it comes through the word given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. As we study the word and the power of the Holy Spirit, our minds are cleansed and our souls follow our minds. I mean, if you got a dirty mind, you're going to have a dirty soul and, and really vice versa. And then verse number six, then the angel of the Lord admonished, really a better word there would be exhorted, Joshua saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of all power, if you will walk in my ways and if you will keep my command. Now notice that command is singular. What's the command of the angel of the Lord? What's Jesus' command? That you love the Lord and you love one another. That's basically it, one command. Then you shall also judge my house, my temple. You'll be over my temple. And likewise have charge of my courts, the whole temple, including the the, the, the outer courts and the inner courts and the holiest of holies. And I will give you places to walk among those who stand here. So, so he's talking about the rewards of obedience. He's, here is Joshua. He's been vindicated from these accusations that Satan has made against him. Then he's been cleansed by the, we know, by the blood of the Lord himself. And, 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 and then he's been given this turban for his head, and so he has the mind of Christ. Where did he get all of that? All of that came by grace. I mean, great grace. What we call amazing grace. All of that. The cleansing of the mind, the cleansing of the soul, the vindication against the accusations of Satan, uh, the wages of sin is death. I mean, the, the life that we get, all of that is grace. And as we receive Christ, uh, that's the way we're supposed to walk in the Christian life. And how do we receive him? We receive him by grace. We receive him by faith. And, and, but he gives him this charge. There's still a choice. And this is where a lot, I think a lot of Christians get the Christian life wrong. There's some idea that God's just going to give you the right choice to make in every situation. We still have our choices. And how... God can use us or the, or the measure in which God can use us is based upon our choices. We make the right choices and we, we keep those garments pure. Now, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness and, and, and uh, so they're going to stay pure. But, but if we're constantly dirty in our garments in the things of this world, God's not going to be able to use us. And so he gives Joshua this charge. He's, he's vindicated him. He's cleansed him. He's placed his turban on upon his head. He's given him the mind of Christ, all of this by grace. And now he gives him charge, this charge to keep himself clean, 
to walk in the ways, in his ways, and to keep his commandment, which is to love others. And if, he says, if you'll do that, you're going to be in charge. I'm going to put you in charge of some very important things. I'm going to put you in charge of my temple. I'm going to put you in charge of this new temple that's being built. But you're also going to have a place in my eternal kingdom. Uh, and uh, you're going to walk among those you see standing here now in this vision. So he's seeing heavenly things. And he's promised that if he'll keep himself clean and that if he'll, I mean, in the sense that he's obedient to the Lord, if he'll walk in God's ways, then uh, one day he'll walk with the angels and he'll walk with in, in heavenly places and he'll be part of God's kingdom. And that promise wasn't just for Joshua. It was for Zerubbabel. It was for all the Israelites and it's for us. In fact, we're going to see that this Sunday in a, in a, in a really uh, descriptive way, the, the rewards of, of, of walking with the Lord. Now, next we get this messianic pro- prophecy, and all of this is heading. Everything we're looking at in Zechariah is heading toward that millennial kingdom and that eternal kingdom uh, that is uh, uh, led by none other than the great Yeshua. We're looking at Yeshua here, uh, this, this high priest, but there's a greater high priest, and that's, that's who we're going to look at now. And so listen to what he says. He says, Hear, O Yeshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. Literally, they're men to be wondered at. I mean, he's saying, you're, you're amazing people. You're, you're an amazing man because what you're doing and you're going you're gonna to be assigned to others because what you're doing points to a greater Yeshua. It points to the Messiah. It points to, uh, as he goes on, he says, For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the Lord saying this, my servant, the branch. Well, we know who that branch is, don't we? It's the angel of the Lord who's speaking to Yeshua. It's Yeshua speaking to Yeshua. The, he's the branch. Several places in the Old Testament, Jesus is referred to as the branch. The Messiah is referred to as the branch. Uh, uh, over in Isaiah, he's, he's referred to as, as the branch. Uh, over in Jeremiah, he's referred to as, in, in Isaiah, he's referred to as the branch of the Lord. In Jeremiah, he's referred to as David's righteous branch or the branch of David. And so you, he, that's really, he, he comes through the Davidic kingdom, uh, that part of that promise that God gave David in 1 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, where David was told that his kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom and through his loins would come the everlasting king. And that's, so he's a branch of the Davidic kingdom. And uh, uh, so... Uh, He says that he's a branch, but he's also a servant. He serves God. How how does Jesus serve God? By giving his life for my sins and for your sins so that Joshua could be a brand plucked from the fire, so that Zerubbabel could be a brand plucked from the fire, so that you and I could be a brand plucked from the fire. Then in verse number 9, he says, For behold, the stone... That I have laid before Yeshua. Upon the stone are seven eyes. Now, again, I said last week, uh, 
I'm going to give you my take on what this vision means. Uh, you probably can find 50 takes on what this vision means. If you want to be right, you want to use my take on this vision. No, I'm teasing. I, I, you know, I'm not guessing. I'm basing upon context of scripture, but there could be some other interpretations that, that might fit here, but I'm going to give you my interpretation. We're not going to explore all the interpretation. We could, we could do that for the next two months. So, so let me just give you my take. And if you want to, want to look up some others, you can, you, you certainly have certainly can free to do that. But anyway, he says in verse number nine, for behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua Upon the stone are seven eyes. This vision's getting kind of weird now. Behold, I will engrave, and ex- let's, let's word that a little bit differently. Behold, I will engrave an, an inscription upon it. I'm going to word that just a little bit differently. Says the Lord of hosts, the one who has power to do all of these things. And I will remove the iniquity of the land of Israel in one day. One day, in one moment of one day. Now, in verse 8, if you look back at verse 8, the Lord is referred to as God's servant and as the branch. And we've discussed those symbols already. But the branch is also a stone. Now, who's the branch? Jesus. Jesus is also a stone. Now, he's the rock of ages. So you could get a lot of, a lot of uh, different interpretations on what this stone means. But I have a hunch that the stone that Zechariah is referring to here, that the Lord is referring to through Zechariah, is the stone in Daniel's vision. And, and, and you remember... In that vision, there's this giant made up of uh, these various empires. And in the last days, a stone is carved out that is, who is none other than the angel of the Lord who comes against that uh, statue and destroys the nations. That's the picture that you get. And so uh, he's that stone. And we're talking about an end times vision, so I think that fits with the prophecy of, of Daniel when Jesus comes against the empires of this world in the last days in order to establish his kingdom. But the weird part of this stone is it's got seven eyes. Now, now let's try to figure out what those seven eyes are. We have looked at this number seven a few times now, and we'll look at it again this Sunday in our study in the book of Revelation. So you ought to be familiar with what the number seven means uh, biblically. It means divine perfection, divine completion. I, I take it to mean the perfect will of God, the complete will of God, the completeness of God, the per- perfect divinity of God. So we have seven eyes which represent the complete sight of God. I think that's the picture. The, the fact that the angel of the Lord, there are seven spirits we're going to see in Sunday study that, go, that went out in the world and now they're before the throne of God. 
they there's only, but we only know there's only one Holy Spirit. God only, Jesus has only two eyes, but those seven eyes, by saying there's seven eyes, we're saying that he sees everything. He has perfect vision. He has complete vision. Uh, he can see those who are his and those who are not his because he sees the heart. He sees the future. That's why in Ephesians we're told that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world because he sees into the future with those seven eyes, that perfect vision that he can see. He can see the past. He can see the future. He can see the present. He can see everything that goes on throughout history, future history, present history, and past history. And so he knows those who are his. And so he looks into the fire of this world he looks into Satan's domain and he knows those who are the brands that can be plucked out of the fire. And I think that's a picture that we're getting right here in, in context. And on that stone, there's an inscription. And I think I know what that inscription is because Isaiah tells us over in chapter 49 that the names of our names, the names of God's people are engraved on the palm of God's hand. And so I think that's the, the inscription there are the people God sees those who are his. He sees his people, the ones that are inscribed upon his hand, the ones who are written in the book of life. And he sees them in the fire and he knows how to pull them out of the fire when the time comes to pull them out of the fire. And that's, what, that's the message that he's given to Joshua. Yeah, things look rough. And yeah, you know, the temple's been destroyed and Israel, the Judah, Jerusalem's been destroyed and it's going to be very difficult to do all of these things. And you only have a ragtag group of, of uh, Israelites to help you. But hey, they're the brand. They're the ones that I put aside. They're the, one, they're the ones that I've had my eyes on this whole time. And now I brought you down here for a purpose and that's to, to, to rebuild the, uh, the temple. And uh, for the branch of, of uh, David. All right, now, then the last verse. And this is a millennial verse. And I got to tell you, you, you could take one verse like this, and it looks pretty, pretty simple. But you could take this verse, and you can expand on this, you know, uh, a, a good bit. Because there's a, it tells you a lot about the millennial in just one verse. The millennium, rather. It tells you a lot about the millennium in just one verse. Look at verse number 10. In that day. Did I, I didn't skip a verse, did I? Yeah, let's go back to nine. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon that stone are seven eyes. No, we did the verse number nine. Behold, I will engrave an inscription, says the Lord. And Oh, I left out an important part of that verse. And I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. Now, what day is he talking about there? Calvary. That, uh, that's, I, I think there's a dual fulfillment right here. I think in a practical sense, I mean, Calvary did its work. Uh, at Calvary, all the, sins were, all the sins of the world were paid for by the sacrifice of, that Jesus made on that cross. And, and in that sense, in one day, iniquity was taken care of. But from a practical standpoint, we won't actually see the effect of that until we get to, to the millennium when Jesus Christ comes and he rules and reigns and then 
with a rod of iron and all sin is put away. Whether you're a born again believer or not, you're not going to be able to sin in the millennium. You're going to die. You're going to be out of here. And so I think Calvary, to me, is the, is, is the most important part of that fulfillment because, because without Calvary, if Jesus returns, then iniquity hasn't been dealt with. And so I believe that day refers to Calvary, but I think it also refers to the millennium because in context with verse number, number 10, it says in that day, and that certainly is a picture of the millennial. So in that day, he says here that uh, I will remove the iniquity of the Lord in one day. And in that day, in verse number 10, we're talking about the millennium. So I think he's talking about the millennium here, but he's also my first uh, response or my first thought is that he's talking about the cross. Because without the cross, iniquity would still be here in the millennium or there would be no people here. And, and they're going to be people here. I mean, the Lord could return in one day and wipe out all the people and the iniquity will, would have been dealt with. But he died on a cross so that when he returns, people who have been cleansed and made holy will be the people that are living on this earth. So that's a, I think there's a dual fulfillment there. But now back to verse number 10. I'm sorry. I almost left out one of the most important parts of that. Back in verse number 10, Zechariah says, in that day, says the Lord of hosts, and we get this millennial passage, and like I'm saying, it, 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 it tells you a lot about the millennium, an awful lot about the millennium. Everyone will invite his neighbor under his, to his home, under his vine, and under his fig tree. Now, I say that tells me a lot. What does it tell me? Well, it tells me that everybody in the millennium is going to be friends. We're all going to be friends. Can you imagine living in a world where you're friends with everybody? I'm talking about friendship beyond anything we can possibly imagine now. But everybody's friends. We're all friends. And you won't be afraid to invite anybody into your home. You won't be afraid that they're going to steal from you. You won't be afraid uh, what they're going to see when they get into your home. You're, you're, we're all going to be friends. It's going to take a while to get to know everybody. But we're all going to be friends. Everybody on this earth during the millennium and then into eternity, everybody on this earth will be brothers and sisters in Christ. Because that's the only people that will survive into eternity. But everyone will be able to invite their neighbor. And they, everybody will have a piece of property. That's interesting. It, under, uh, everyone will be able to invite the neighbor under the vine and under his fig tree. Now, vine implies what? Vine implies that you have a vineyard. And you have to work a vineyard. A fig tree, you just plant the fig tree and it grows. But a vineyard, you have to work. So I think that's a picture of the fact that in the millennium, we'll all have a place in God's kingdom. We'll have a job to do. But we'll also be able to just enjoy the surroundings around us. We'll be able to pick the figs from the fig trees. And I'm not just, I don't personally like figs that much, so, so that wouldn't be a great reward. But that's a picture of the fact that there's going to be all sorts of, I don't want to say freebies, but all sorts of blessings on this earth that we will all share in. And everybody will have their little plot of land and they'll be able to, to, uh, to uh, 
enjoy that land and enjoy each other. We won't have any thieves. We won't have any liars. We won't have any uh, swindlers. We won't have any of those things. We won't have any politicians. Uh, we won't have any elections. Jesus will be king of kings and lord of lords. And if you don't like it, tough, tough. Uh, he's the ultimate despot. He will rule and reign in all power. And his law will be the law of the land. And if you don't like it, again, tough. But hey, we're going to enjoy this place. We're going to enjoy this place where people serve one another and do good to one another. And everyone has their place on this earth. And, and uh, everybody reaps from the blessings on this earth. And so all the work that we do, we do, we will do with joy and peace. And I got to tell you, I'm looking forward to that day because we know we're near that now on this earth. In fact, it's heading the opposite direction and it's going to head the opposite direction until things crash. And when they crash, look up because your redemption draweth nigh. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for uh, your word and the encouragement here, this encouragement that you gave through this vision for the people of Israel, for Joshua and for Zerubbabel and and this ragtag group of Israelites, Lord, we're a ragtag group too. And, and, it, and, and we find encouragement in, in the fact that you've cleansed us, Lord, that you've, you've uh, vindicated us from the accusations of Satan, that, that Lord, we're, we're forever perfected in, in Jesus Christ through his blood. Father, you've given us uh, your word and you've given us the mind of Jesus Christ, Lord, and now uh, we have choices to make. We have a choice... Uh, as we live through this life, Lord, to walk uh, according to your will. And when we do that, Lord, you can use us now. And, Lord, I know you're going to use us all in eternity. And, Lord, we look forward to your return. But in the meantime, Lord, we want to be uh, that group that, that, that uh, repairs the things that are around us that, that you use to, to, to pluck people out of the fire, Lord just as you've plucked us out of the fire. We're all brands that have been plucked out of the fire. We just thank you for the grace. Uh, we thank you for those seven eyes that have been on us from the day we were born, Lord. And, and when you were ready, you took us out and, and you, you put us on our spiritual feet. And Lord, you, we, we, we don't look back. We just thank you for all you've done. We thank you through Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen.